For years, I've had this crazy idea that I should be able to improvise a full four-movement piano sonata. Is this just another example of me being completely out of touch with my times? Well, yes, but that doesn't mean it won't work. Stay tuned and find out if it does. First this. Hey, it's Peter Saltzman. If you love improvisations on the ledge, please be so kind as to spread the word, give it five stars, and a great review. And to keep up to date with all of my activities, including this podcast, new albums, performances, and music education, be sure to visit my website at petersaltzman.com. Enjoy the show. Two thousand twenty will be the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the birth of Beethoven. To prepare for that, I've been chronologically listening to his piano sonatas. There are thirty-two, and most musicians, at least if they know about this music, consider that Beethoven sonatas and quartets and symphonies to be among the most important works of music ever written. So I've been listening to one of my favorite classical pianists, Alfred Brendel. I'm up to 15 or 16. The fact is I've played a lot of them over time, and I sight-read through some of them again now and then. I'm reminded of just how wonderful and creative, particularly starting around number six or seven, these multi-movement pieces of piano music are. They're just unbelievably varied and, and deep and thoughtful and songful as well. But it got me to thinking about something I've spoken about in the past, which is Beethoven's ability to improvise at the highest level. And one of the things I spoke about in previous episodes was how he could improvise full sonatas that rivaled his written versions. Of course, as I said then, we'll never know, unfortunately, unless we are able to invent time travel and go back and listen. And we know that's not happening. So all you can do is infer. And ever since I read this when I was 17 or 18, I had it in the back of my mind that, damn it, I want to be able to do that. Now, first of all, and that's what I'm going to do in this episode, and in fact, this episode will be kind of the launch pad for a series I'm going to do of not podcasts, but digital albums, streaming albums called The Improvised Sonata. But before I get to that, let me talk about what a sonata is in periods of musical history, but also what the word literally is. Uh, It's derived from the word sonare, uh, a Latin and Italian word which means literally to sound, and and in music it means a piece that is played as opposed to cantare or cantata, which means to be sung. So on the simplest level, it's an instrumental piece of music as opposed to a sung piece of music. Now, I'm not going to get into the entire history of how that developed. I'm not a musical scholar or a musicologist. I'm a musician, a creative musician, and I'm more interested in what sonata means creatively. What did it mean to Beethoven? What did it mean to Mozart or earlier in the Baroque period? Fundamentally, when we say sonata, we think of an instrumental piece of music. That much is clear. Most people will think of piano sonatas because that's our experience of it, but there are violin sonatas and I suppose oboe sonatas. Maybe 
not. Uh, there probably are. Clarinet sonatas? Sure. Didn't, uh, what's his name? Brahms, he wrote one. Beautiful. I think that's a sonata. As a form, the sonata is fundamentally a three or four movement piece of instrumental music. They're usually contrasting song and dance movements in the classical period and even later, and I suppose earlier, but I just, I don't know the Baroque sonatas that well, or at all, to be honest. So fundamentally, it's a multi-movement form, contrasting song and dance type movements. You'll have normally at the beginning a faster movement, then maybe a minuet a dance form. We'll talk about the first movement later. A dance form like a minuet and trio, which comes from a classical court dance, I believe, and is almost always in 3-4 time, waltz time. It's a dance, man. Uh, And then a song-like movement, an adagio, a slow movement, and depending on the tempo of the first movement, if it's super fast, you may put that slow movement second, and the minuet the dance movement third. And sometimes that's all there is. Sometimes it's three movements. Sometimes it's that big first movement, a minuet and trio, or scherzo, which is a faster version of the minuet, followed by the final movement, which is usually what's called a rondo. Beethoven and a fair amount of Mozart sonatas, and I guess Haydn, kind of move between the three and four movement, depending on what they were trying to achieve. But they tended to move more towards four movements as the classical, so-called classical period evolved. And that fourth movement was almost always what's called a rondo, not rajan, but rondo spelled the same way is a kind of mix between the various, the earlier movements, somewhere between song and dance, and also has some of the complexity of the first movement, the son- what we'll talk about in a minute, the sonata allegro, but it's usually also a little lighter. Now, the other definition of sonata among musicians is the sonata form, or what's called sonata allegro form, and it's almost always used in the first movement of a sonata or a symphony or a string quartet or just about anything multi-movement type of piece written in that period and even well into the Romantic period with Schubert and then the kind of neoclassicist like Brahms, who's a romantic in a classicist's body or a classicist living in the Romantic era. I don't know. I love Brahms, except when I don't. Sometimes he overthinks... So, Sonata Allegro, what is that? That's a specific form in which you have two or three sections, parts to it. And that two and three depends on how you, A, choose to look at it, and also when historically you're looking at it. The earliest sonatas, the the sonatas by guys like Scarlatti, the Bach sons, and so on, the early classical period sonatas, were simpler and shorter, tended to be in two parts, what we would call a binary form, and each of those parts would be constructed of smaller subsections, like the main theme, the secondary theme and then possibly a tertiary theme. And then the second larger part would be normally a development of those things, a dramatic instrumental form in which you take a few themes, two or three, 
then more often than not, repeat that opening section, which has come to be called the exposition section, just as we have in theater and film and TV. The first act is exposition. The second act is kind of development of that. So the second large section in classical sonata form is usually called the development section, where you take the themes from the exposition and do just that, develop them. Freely improvise, in a sense, with them, but in that period, written down. And then, if you're going to break this into three parts, we have what's called a recapitulation, which is a repetition of the beginning, the exposition section, but with some changes in key structure and and various other things. And then there may be what's called a coda, a tale, added little section at the end. So, that's a broad overview of what that form is, how it came to be talk to the musical scholars. My interpretation, which is probably a misinterpretation, but I'm big on creative misinterpretation, is that it's really this large song form or developed out of a binary song form, a song form with an A and B section, then a repetition of the A, so ABA. And this was a way composers wrote instrumental versions of song forms. And then because, and I'm just thinking aloud here, because it's instrumental, it lacks the power of the human voice. They felt the need to develop it more to do more because, let's face it, people love singers and they want that immediate human connection of the voice. So lacking that, composers developed the musical ideas to make up for the lack of that voice. A great voice, of course, can just carry the day even if the music is kind of shitty or just run-of-the-mill. So composers developed those themes. So you state your themes, you develop them. Now we have the makings of a sonata form. And then because you want the people to feel comfortable, you come back to it. You recapitulate them. You don't want to leave them just with a bunch of dramatic development that then doesn't have a sense of closure. So in music, that's normally done with recapitulation. So that's an overview of the sonata form. Now, getting back to my all-time musical hero, Beethoven, and the idea that he improvised these. And this is spoken of in by multiple sources, including Haydn and Mozart and many of Beethoven's friends and patrons, I suppose. So when improvising a sonata, is this a static kind of musical form, both in the the larger sense, these four, three or four movements, that only applies to that period of music that had that particular musical language, classical period, where there are a lot of, I'm not going to say rules, but harmonic principles at work that in a way contribute to this form? Or is it just a general principle, sonata, where looking at the first movement, which is the big, usually the bigger, most dramatic movement, a exposition of themes, development, recapitulation. Is that something that can translate into the modern era? This is something that's concerned me personally because while I've done a lot of vocal music, probably half, at least half of my output is vocal, instrumental music is my first experience and love 
in that, you know, I grew up playing the piano. I played in jazz bands. I played tons of Beethoven sonatas and Mozart and Chopin and all this. This was my first experience as a player and composer of music. So one of the dynamics for me, and in a way a conflict, was, well, in the modern era, the music I grew up with was very song-oriented. And I'm talking about the music I first heard, for the most part, Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, Stevie Wonder, Earth, Wind and Fire. These were all my early musical heroes, Carole King. And what did they all do? They all sang. They all wrote lyrics and masterfully the best of them. These are great musical works on par with some of the greatest instrumental music. I'm not one of these people who says, well, they only wrote songs. They can't be on the level of Mozart. Mozart was fundamentally a songwriter, as I've said. Fundamentally, Beethoven was a songwriter. All you have to do is go listen to some of those sonatas, and you'll see these are songs that they've developed. But there's a power of instrumental music. There are things on instruments like the piano or violin or guitar or whatever that obviously the human voice can't replicate. So we have the ability to develop musical ideas in more complex ways. So getting back to my point, could this idea of large-scale instrumental forms be replicated in a modern sense without being didactic and neoclassical, which is something I'm a little dubious of, neo-anything? Can you do something original and feels organically musical in a modern sense using the basic fundamental ideas of the great sonata form, both in the smaller sense of a single sonata allegro movement and the larger sense of three or four movements? So for years, I've been experimenting with doing this. I wrote, started to write a piano sonata maybe... 20-something years ago, I wrote one movement, and it was long and never got beyond that. But it's something that con- still concerns me, and I so I've decided, well, the hell with writing them. I'm going to improvise them. And that's what this is about. Today is the beginning. I'm launching the Improvised Sonata Project right here on Improvisations on the Ledge. And I'll be releasing these whenever I do them digitally on the usual streaming services that pay musicians almost nothing. Apple Music, Spotify. So here's the first one. Movement number one, which will be made up right now.
Okay, so that's my first movement. In playing it, I kind of set myself up by posing the question, is the sonata form something that could be transposed, reimagined in the modern sense? And as I'm playing that, I'm thinking, no, not really. (laughs) Or at least I don't think that way. Now, if you were listening closely or even not so closely, you probably noticed that improvisation had basically one theme with plenty of variations and suggestions of other themes. It was, um, which is just one, two, three, four, four notes. This is how I tend to improvise. It's kind of a problem, actually. I get stuck on a theme and I can't leave it. Now, that's me. I'm not sure it's a problem. It's just a musical trait of me. Both a strength and a weakness, I suppose, like all of us, our strengths or our weakness or whatever that that thing is. In the narrowest sense, my answer to that question of whether we can transpose the sonata form to the modern world is no. In the broader sense, though, of sonata, meaning to play, of course we can, to sound. And the question then becomes, okay, if you're not using a strictly sonata allegra form as I described it, then what are you using? Honestly, I don't know. I call it, or I'm about to call it, perpetual development, because I need a term for what the hell I'm doing. It Clearly, I stated themes, or a theme, and then went with it. That's how I improvise. A lot of people do not, by the way. And that's not a value judgment. That's how I improvise, whereas a lot of people don't. Now, I've performed a first movement. The second movement, as I spoke about earlier with the four-movement classical sonata form, if that first movement was kind of not so fast, more mellow, more songful, then the second movement would tend to be more rhythmic, usually the minuet and trio or scherzo and trio, particularly in Beethoven. This first movement to me felt very songful and mid-tempo. So my natural response, and this is where the idea of the sonata form in the larger sense does work for me, is to go fast or rhythmic just for variety's sake. So I'm going to do that now.
Okay, there's a fast movement. One of the things you may have noticed is that I carried that first theme over. I used it as a kind of frame, and, and I did that, let me just say, partly because I have this monothematic tendency, as I've already spoken of, holding on to a theme perhaps too long. But as soon as I noticed that, I came up with something else, not really on purpose, it just happened, which was like this five-note ascending scale. And I use that more prominently in part to get away from that primary motif that I came up with in the first movement, and in part just purely accidentally. This is something about improvisation, free improvisation like this, or as Jean-Michel Pilk said in an episode you'll be hearing soon, uh, this great French pianist, instant composition, which kind of gets back to the idea of what was Beethoven doing when he improvised these sonatas. It wasn't free improvisation, it was instant composition, using the forms of the time, which related to song forms and dance forms. Mine do too, but my song forms are different, my dance forms are different. I also have developed my own, I don't want to say theories, but concepts about how to develop musical ideas over a long life in music. And those come out maybe more in my improvisations than even written works because I don't have time to go back and figure it out. So we now had a medium-tempo songful first movement, a up-tempo non-stop perpetual mobile second movement. The obvious choice here for me for the third movement is song.
So that was fairly dramatic and in a way not at all what I thought I would be doing, which is a purely song-like movement. Now it had that, it was slow and melodic, but also very contrapuntal, something I've spoken about in previous episodes, meaning there was a lot of intervoice movement, voices moving against each other. Again, I briefly stated the main theme from the first movement, which now I'm forgetting what it was. I think that was it. It was in there, and then I. it seems to be as I move further away from that first movement, it's becoming less and less prominent, which is probably a good idea. Instead, we had a couple different themes interacting there, which are actually related. So there's your slow song movement. Now, if I were to continue following the broader designs of the classical form, I would end up with this kind of rondo movement, which let me give you a sense of what that means. You have a theme, a main theme, and then you go to a secondary theme. Main theme is A, secondary theme is B. And then you come back to the main theme, but with some variation. So it's A, B, A prime, I suppose. And then you go to another theme, which we'll call C. So you have A, B, A, C, A, D, and so on. Over the period of, particularly with Beethoven, that rondo form started to become sonata allegroized, so to speak, in that within that basic concept of alternating themes between a main theme and multiple secondary themes, he created a larger sonata allegro form, a what I referred to earlier as the exposition development recapitulation. So that was a genius move by Mr. Beethoven to be able to kind of meld those two things. You could listen to not just the later sonatas, but the symphonies like the fifth, the third, generally the odd numbers, seven. Nine is a, that's the Ode to Joy thing with all that singing. And But even there, which is a massive movement, there is the sense of a larger sonata allegro form. Anyway, I have no idea what to do with this. So here it goes, which is a great state for improvising, by the way.
So there it is, a improvised four-movement sonata. Actually, that last movement did have elements of the rondo, the A-B-A-C-A-D-A. And one thing that occurred to me while I was playing it, I tend to choose these very simple themes. In this case... Very simple, and there's a reason for that. They're easy to remember, meaning if I'm going to improvise on a theme, I don't want something that's kind of like this. I already forgot what I played. So I think that my hero Beethoven, I'm speculating here, that that's probably why he chose such simple themes, not only to improvise in, but to write in, after all. And even the aforementioned Ninth Symphony, the Ode to Joy, the theme itself of the last movement is quite simple. Now that's the A section, then there's a B section. But basically, just a basic five-note scale up and down. And the reason he chose those kinds of themes is because they're more amenable to development. And that's what we like to do as instrumental composers, even though that's a vocal movement, is develop ideas. And in that sense, I suppose, the sonata idea is very much alive. Or at least that's what I'm telling myself. And next week, I do hope to be back with the aforementioned Jean-Michel Pilk episode. This is where the two of us discuss what improvisation is, what the meaning is, what's going on. Jean-Michel has some very interesting ideas on it that both agree with and conflict with my own. You'll be hearing piano music from both of us and mostly him talking about how he thinks about all this stuff, all the stuff that I'm prattling on about all the time. So it will be interesting to hear another voice. That's coming hopefully next week, if not the week after that. There's a lot of editing when there are two people involved. So stay tuned for that and future episodes of Improvisations on the Ledge. Also, watch on your streaming music services like Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Tidal for the launch of the Improvised Sonata Project. Coming soon. Coming soon.